Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Welcome to In Her Shoes. I'm Lindsay Peoples, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of The Cut. On this show, I get to talk to people that we love and admire, or some that we just find interesting. We'll explore how they found their path and what maybe have gotten in their way, and how they brought others along now that they've arrived. Paulina Poroskova has been famous just about her entire life. As a model in the 80s, she was once one of the highest paid supermodels in the world. But back then, she was known for being seen and not heard. At this stage in her life, she's more focused on telling her story. Her book, No Filter, The Good, The Bad, and The Beautiful, touches on her career as a model, unpacking the grief of her husband's death, and the way that we see aging women in society. We talked about all of that and then some. Every show, I actually start out by asking my guests what kind of shoes they have on since this show is called In Her Shoes. Uh, So please tell me... If you have anything on your feet right now, what are you wearing? Or if you're at home, barefoot, in socks, house shoes kind of situation, what are your favorite pair of shoes? Right. So I am at home and I am absolutely shoeless, which I prefer (laughs) to be at home uh, if I can be. Uh, But uh, my favorite shoes, I would have to say at the moment, it would be Birkenstocks. I'm like really big into Birkenstocks. Good one. I discovered them sort of late because I always thought they looked like Minnie Mouse feet. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And I didn't think it was that attractive. And I also have sort of skinny ankles and calves. So they made my feet look huge. But then I discovered one, one model of Birkenstocks that actually looked good on my foot. And so I bought like four pair. Yeah. The only bummer about winter is that I can't wear my Birkenstocks. Oh, I wear mine with socks. Yeah. That's so Scandinavian of you. That's what a <laughs> history professor in Scandinavia used to wear do it. with socks. Mm-hmm. It's it's not bad actually, especially if you contrast them. You know, it's it's not bad. Okay, maybe I'll take a, a note. I'll DM you some it. ideas. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I just have to get some better looking socks. On. <laughs> we have to start talking about no filter. Uh, we had previously a conversation a couple weeks ago, and um, I was just so captivated by your book and your story. So let's start just by you know talking about when you even first started writing and what made you want to to write this book. All right, what made me want to write this book was that Maria Shriver called me <laughs> uh, kind of out of the blue last year and said, um, hey, uh, how would you like to write a book for me? And I, I have to admit, like, I thought it was a prank call. I was like, why is Maria Shriver calling me? And it turns out that she was following me on Instagram. She sort of said, I would like you to write a book for me the way you write on Instagram. And 
I had gotten, you know, agents were calling me about, oh, do you want to do a, a tell-all memoir, you know, lots of money? And I was like, nope, 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 that's never going to happen. But Maria offered something entirely different. She's like, do your thing, you know, do what you're already doing, but mm -hmm. you can go more in depth with it. And that inspired me. I thought, oh, look, I'm doing it for free anyway on Instagram. So do, you know, take those thoughts and, and all this that I have been processing and, and just go deeper with it. That's why I said yes, because I got inspired. And then yeah. Maria floored me with, uh, oh, and you have three months to in which to write it. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a lot of time at all. Uh, no. um, and so much is so much in your life has happened. So, I mean, from the beginning of your career, at least, you, you know, you became the Estee Lauder woman in 1989. There's so much in the book where you talk about just how models are positioned in the industry um, and just feeling this sense of that you don't belong, but also so much pressure. What was that feeling like when you were part of that at such a young age and so much pressure on you? I think this is it also in part why the modeling business really picked very young women, girls, to be specific. And as I have an essay called that we were always called girls was because you're endlessly malleable and flexible when you are a girl. You know, you're still growing up. I was 15 when I started. So I didn't know that my world was not an ordinary one. I didn't know that the pressures of modeling, the sexual harassment of it, the, you know, day-to-day um, -day sort of making a living and never having, you know, a, a firm future ahead. I didn't know that that wasn't how life was for, you know, everyone else. When you're a teen, you do tend to think very selfishly, you know, you're very self-involved. And I just took it that's it. That's my, that's my life now. I didn't spend a whole lot of time thinking about it. I just felt it, obviously. Yeah. I mean, this book is also going over things that have happened to you on set, very, you know, traumatic things as well. Um, and a specific quote that I wanted to read about you, you were saying that harassment perversely became a confirmation of desirability. How did all those experiences and many others just shape the way that you went about navigating your career? Like, were, did you feel like you were actually choosing things or you were just taking it as it came towards you and trying to figure out how to navigate forward? You know what? Um, at, at first, when you start, you can't really make choices if you want to make a living. You just have to go along with what anybody asks of you and what you get offered. Again, it's like it's a freelance job. Every day can be your last job. Mm -hmm. and I had girlfriends that, you know, did three jobs and that was it. And then they were not wanted anymore and they got sent home. And bye-bye. Bye-bye. Big modeling career. Right. Um, so at first you agree to everything and you try to please and try to be accommodating so that you get booked again because it's such an insecure job. Later on, obviously, as my career grew and I became more and more popular in the fashion world and then even famous, wow, you know, lucky, lucky me. And it, it, it was, it was extreme luck as far as I'm concerned. Um, then, then you get choices. But by then, you've already been indoctrinated into this mm -hmm. world that says this is normal. Right. You know? Right. So was there a point or a moment in your career you felt like maybe this isn't normal and maybe I actually can push back or I want to push back? No. 
There was never a moment of that. There was a moment where I was satiated with, you know, career. And I thought, I don't need more pictures of myself. Um, and I have made plenty of money. And then, you know, I, I got married and I had children. And it just, it, it ceased to be important. I wanted to do movies. I wanted to write. There was a lot of other things that I wanted to do. So the modeling sort of fell by the wayside quite organically. I just didn't, you know, that it wasn't, I didn't need to do it anymore to, to make a living. Mm -hmm. Even if modeling was something that you felt like just phased out of your life naturally, so much so of what was indoctrinated in, in your mind and in your, you know, emotional intelligence, all of that probably also stuck. So how did that also just impact you as you started to age, but, you know, had grown up in an industry that really prioritized and put on a pedestal women's insecurities and only having young models and only looking a certain way? Well, it certainly made me incredibly sensitive to pulchritude, to just the you know physical aspects of beauty and, and symmetry. And it made me incredibly judgmental about people's looks because that was my whole world. Things you, you would never think of in a normal life. You know, some, somebody once told me that if I am looked at from above, my nose skews slightly to the left. Like, how important is that for life, right? <laughs> but yet, this is something that stuck with me. It's like, oh, my nose skews slightly to the left if you're looking from above. There's this huge, like, enhanced, crazy enhanced uh, attention to physical beauty and what physical beauty is and what how, how it's perceived. And also, what is the responsibility of beauty? Is there such a thing as responsibility of beauty? And, um, and the cost of it. I mean, of course, all of this is, you know, growing up in that environment and then being my age. Now I can look back and go, oh, I, I see how it all connects together. Of course, but at the time I couldn't. At the time, I was just a young girl who was supposed to be perfect. She was supposed to be the, the model of a perfect woman, the prototype of a woman. Mm -hmm. um, and I could never live up to that just like anybody else could not live up to it because none of us are made perfect, right? It's kind of our yeah. flaws that make us unique and, and, and delightful. But in the modeling world, it made you feel like um, you were just never good enough. Other people would go, well, you're so beautiful. I mean, it's so easy for you because you look so amazing. And I knew better. Because I was told on a daily basis that uh, that there was something a little bit wrong with me. I, my knees were too chubby. I, my hips were too slim. La, 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 la. And I remember when, even when I was dating and men would always say, well, I'm not going to tell you that you're beautiful because you hear it every day. And I'd be so That's sad. That's an odd thing to I say. Think, Nobody tells me I'm beautiful every day. Yeah. Everybody picks on me every day. So much, so much to unpack here. Um I mean, the, this excerpt also just ends with a, with a quote that I wanted to read in which you said, the ideal woman is naive, malleable, inexperienced, and undiscerning. The ideal woman is not a woman. She's a girl, um, which I found to be, you know, incredibly powerful. And so much of what I think people have not understood is that this is not just pertaining to 
just being a model. I think that um, women across the board feel this in so many ways, and especially with the rise in social media. Um, I think this is something that so many women can identify with. What was it like, you know, to to find yourself being infantilized even as you grew up and you've grown out of this and you're now writing about it and being able to look back on that well, young again, girl? Again, having been infantilized. Um, I did not know any better. I thought that that's how it went for everybody. It's only now with hindsight that I can see what an enormous flaw that is in our social structure that youth is valued above all. And I think, honestly, besides being kind of like bouncy and shiny and light reflective when you're young um, and able to carry children if you want them, um, what's so superior to youth to age? Because age is really when you come into yourself, into your power, into your intelligence, into all that you are, into your self-worth, into self-acceptance. Um, why do we so glorify youth when we are much more powerful human beings as we age? Now that to me doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Yeah. But you know, it's like I was, I was actually on the job just uh fairly recently, a couple of weeks ago, and I was getting dressed and the stylist said something about my body. And she said, we, we have a really good body for, you know, being an older girl. <laughs> what is that even supposed to mean? <laughs> well, and also who asked you? Yeah. Uh, but see, this is the norm in that world. This is not seen as offensive. This is just a normal everyday line. So if you're fed, if you live in that world every day, this is the sort of stuff you will hear every day. And then you will, of course, normalize that. You will believe that this is how everybody treats everybody. Right. You know, this, and it's like, I'm 57 and I'm an older girl with a pretty good body for an older girl. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, so much of this, so much of what you're experiencing and it has, I think, really something that we all are trying to, to wrap our heads around. And I, and I also wanted to know where your head was at about how hard it was to recount a lot of these stories. Like, I mean, you can readily recount, you know, somebody saying a stupid snide comment to you on set from a couple of weeks ago, but so much of, you know, this book is really emotional. Um, how hard was it for you to, you know, go back and think of all of these things and be able to write about it now, you know, with the hindsight? Well, you know, the, my modeling experiences to a certain extent had been exercised a little bit in my novel that I wrote and it's like came out like 12 or 14 years ago which was a coming of age of a young girl in Paris at 15. And so I used a lot of how it felt, how awful it felt at, at 15 to be um, in this world. Um, I used that for the novel. And then, I, and then I had the freedom of a novel so I could make stuff up. I could mm -hmm. do whatever I wanted with it, but I could use what I knew. So when I, when I was revisiting that stuff in this book, that part of it is no longer painful to me. I, I already felt like I had said it. I had put it out there. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it, in a way, I was, it was difficult to try to find a way of, of um, saying it in that new way that would still touch me as I was saying it because, um, you know, it's, I'm kind of over it. <laughs> I've, I've talked so much about it. I was mm -hmm. like, yeah, yeah. When I started in on it, 
some of the old outrage came back to me <laughs> when I thought about it as, of, of the, from the perspective of this older woman now. And I have, you know, granddaughters, step granddaughters, and I have goddaughters who are, you know, teens and in their early 20s. And I thought, how awful it would be if I heard them recount this story to me now. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's the reality of it, not the twisted one that I didn't understand but lived. The hardest part of the book for me to write, honestly, were not even the grief and 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 the heartbreak and all of that, which I was also going through and which is also well represented in the book. But hardest thing for me to write was about falling in love with my husband because I was still felt deeply betrayed, mm-hmm. grieving, angry. And so writing about falling in love and remembering how how much I adored this man and how much I loved him, that that was the tricky part. That was a hard one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've also talked um, about a lot of, you know, other just relationships and dating. And I wanted to to ask, I mean, how, what are, what is your perspective on this now? Because I feel like we've talked about so much on the cut and, and sex diaries and other columns that women always feel like there's, there's this seemingly expiration date with them and, and dating or and wanting relationships. And so how has it been oh, for yeah. you? How do you feel on it? Oh no, it's, that's absolutely accurate. I mean, we've all seen, well, I hope we've all seen the Amy Schumer skit of the last <laughs> day where they sent off uh, my favorite comedian uh, on a canoe and shoot the uh, flaming arrows at her because that's it. She's done. Hollywood has deemed her uh, undesirable, I shall say. And there seems to be an expiration date on women. Again, youth is treasured. Girls are valuable. Maybe because of their flexibility and their malleability and relative powerlessness or at least this is how it used to be i do think that the new generation is growing up with far more uh sense of their own power but then and then we get kind of messed up with the uh world on social media with filters and i'm becoming more and more offended by filters (laughs) (laughs) yeah well because they're now they're just out of control it started out like a it started out to be a subtle Subtle well, thing, and then now it's like, fun, yeah. right? I mean, or yeah. at least like makeup. Makeup is fun. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't feel like if I put on makeup, I'm lying to you about the way I look. It's kind of play. I can be with makeup, without makeup, whatever. Yeah. But filters have, like, now when I look through Instagram and I see all the filtered posts, and I think, oh my God, it's like literally everybody is using them these days. Um, mm-hmm. like I see so few faces that have pores or wrinkles or any imperfections. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody's eyes are really big and everybody's noses are small and everybody's lips are plump. And what does mm-hmm. that look like? A girl. So it's, you know, as we're sort of adv- advancing as a society in uh, allowing women to have the vote. Yay. Right, a hundred years ago, uh, <laughs> allowing us to own property, though know, allowing us to perhaps have a divorce if our husband is being abusive. All these strides we've made for women, and there, I feel like it's like all getting shoved back because now, now we can all look like girls, and and the problem is that we all want want to look like girls. That's the that's what troubles me is that. When you have a choice between being a mature you 
or uh, infantilized you, you're going to pick that. You're going to pick the filter that's going to make you look 20 years younger. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's sad because what we really need more of is representation of powerful, beautiful, older women. Michelle Obama. Yeah. More of that, please. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when did you feel like, though, you got to a point where you were embracing your age and and everything that came along with it? Well, I'm definitely embracing my age. I'm not embracing everything that comes along with it. (laughs) You know, reality is it's like there's no one clear avenue, one clear answer. The, The reality is, is that I am really proud and happy to be 57. I think I am a better woman internally than I have ever been. I'm the best human that I have ever been, the most powerful, um, the most forgiving to myself, the most accepting of myself, and also perfectly capable of understanding what my weaknesses are and where I can do better and still open to learning new stuff. You know, I mean, really, it's a fantastic place to be mentally, emotionally. Um, as far as, you know, externally, I mean, you know, I'm not blind. I look at myself in the mirror and I go, oh, well, I see a 57-year-old woman. And being single, that is not an asset. Um, and it's not an asset in my job in, in modeling either. The pictures that people will pick are still the ones where I look youngest. You know, the ones where mm-hmm. I have the least amount of wrinkles, where the light falls just so that I look 10 years younger. Mm-hmm. This is still what's desired in, in our society. So I'm not like loving every wrinkle and every sag. I'm sort of battling with myself to do so. I'm still kind of sort of conducting this battle with saying like, okay, so when you start aging, you get shamed for aging, for no longer being a girl. So you can either take that shame and do something about your face to escape that shame, mm-hmm. get things done to your face that will, you know, stave it off for, for a bit, or you can work on the shame part. Um, and I, so I'm trying to work on the shame part instead of on the face part, because I really don't think that there's anything wrong with an aging face. Yeah. No, that's that's beautiful. To me, it sounds like, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. Would you say that your favorite part of getting older has been that sense of self acceptance and the conversations that you're able to have with yourself in a in a better way? Undoubtedly, you're not putting words in my mouth. It's exactly what I'm saying. But the, and it's not so much the conversations with myself. I had to do a lot, a lot of soul searching after my husband died. Um. And after my boyfriend left me, um, I, I had to do a lot of deep digging um, to just actually stay alive because I was um, devastated and a lot of learning. Like, who am I and what have I done wrong here? Like, wh- where have I contributed to where I am? And I mm-hmm. sort of take some, you know, pretty drastic look at myself. And, and that was... Uh, Difficult, very, very difficult, but also, you know, when you are put through 
a really, really intensely difficult time. I don't think it makes you stronger. I know this is what people says, say. <laughs> it doesn't kill you. It makes you stronger. I do not agree because I think uh, what doesn't kill you often actually just does kill you. And that's, and that's that. Um, but I do think that when you encounter really difficult situations, what you come away with is how strong you are, how much you can take. Sometimes, you know, sometimes you can't take as much as you thought you could. And sometimes you can take on a lot more than, than you thought you could. So you come away with a self-awareness. Like, this is, this is how much I can carry. This is what I can do. And this is where I'm at. I know, I know my strength. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. So much of this book is is about the grief, but I think also about betrayal. And um, I remember when we talked a couple weeks ago, um, I was saying to you that I felt like you're so optimistic, <laughs> even though a lot of this book is so heavy. Um, how how have you grappled with grief and betrayal in that way? But you are, I mean, still seemingly to me very hopeful about the future. Oh, I'm. If I wasn't hopeful about the future, I probably would have killed myself, quite honestly. No, I'm I am nothing but hopeful for the future because again, because I feel like I've finally come into my power as a full person and I know what I'm capable of. So and I think I'm capable of a lot more than I have been allowed to do thus far. So all of this is still ahead, right? There's so much life ahead. And so yes, I'm very full of optimism. But getting to this sort of optimism at a pretty high cost. Um, and it's not like I'm optimistic every day. I don't wake up every morning going, mm -hmm. hooray, onward, <laughs> and let, you know, conquer the day, carpe diem. We, I'm still in grief. I mean, it's been three years. I still, I'm still grieving. Uh, it's not acute grief anymore, but it's still grief. And, I think, and if I had, if I heard myself talking now ten years ago, I would be like, "Oh, oh, oh my God, you're so full of crap," um, because I have come around to, and I, I find this very cliched to this word gratitude, mm -hmm. and you know we are we embrace it so much, and everybody's grateful, and everybody claims gratitude, and. That, but when it comes down to it, I guess we do it because it really is one of the most glorious things there is. It is gratitude, gratitude for the moment, gratitude for your life. And I think that's what allowed me to uh, ultimately get over the anger of the betrayal at my husband was looking back 
and being grateful for the love I had. Be grateful for the 25 years of my life where I felt absolutely loved and absolutely embraced and absolutely safe. And then crap happened, but... <laughs> But I had, I've had some really beautiful, magical moments in my life. And, and remembering those makes me grateful. And the gratitude makes me feel hopeful about the future that, that there are still things up ahead. Yeah. I mean, so much of this is, is so vulnerable. And so I also just wanted to, to time travel back for a second into the first time that you were so vulnerable about your relationships and modeling and grief and all of the things. What was it? What was that first, you know, moment like when you were sharing your journey on social media um, and all the things that you've gone through? I would love to give you just one, like a, one concrete example of where I went, this is it. I'm going to out myself on social media for everyone <laughs> to see my grief. But that's not how it worked at all. I was devastated and I just didn't know what to post. And posting my vulnerable posts were really just me reaching out to other people saying, help, I'm, I'm drowning here. Like, mm -hmm. can anyone hear me? Because we were in the lockdown. We were in a pandemic. Everybody was suffering. And nobody had friends to hold them. And nobody could go out and get distracted with drinks at a bar with their buddies. Oh, we were all, like, locked in a house and, and all suffering to, you know, whatever extent. And I think if I had done it for attention, if I had gone into posting, being vulnerable on social media with the thought that this was somehow going to benefit me, mm -hmm. people would have seen right through that. Yeah. And I don't think they would have reacted the same way that they did react. I do have to say that the one post that I understood before I posted, I thought, oh, mm, am I really going to do this? Was one where I'm, um, where I videotaped myself sobbing like hysterically, and again I was like, you know what? I had been sobbing hysterically for ten hours a day, every day for a year, and I was, I, I started like, you know, I would cry and I would sort of look at myself and would do this split screen thing where like one part of me would be in this tremendous pain and the other part of me would be looking at me going. Hmm. Oh, so your tears are now rolling into your nose. Okay. And, you know, oh, the pillow is wet on the right side. It was like, you know, I had done so much of it that it almost started become, becoming boring, but I couldn't stop because there was still so much internal pain. And so at one point I, I was like, oh, I'm just, I'm going to videotape myself and, and see what it looks like while I'm having a freaking breakdown. And also, you know, I, I have been an actress I have been in 16 movies I have had to cry sometimes on command which was incredibly difficult for me yeah um and so this was kind of like it was almost like you know like oh wow finally I know how to cry really well <laughs> check this out <laughs> I could have kept that one to myself the the I guess the notable part of that was that I decided to post that one mm -hmm. uh, knowing that it was ugly and I did not know what the reaction was going to be. Yeah. But again, I posted it with the thought of like, if I knew Cindy Crawford was in a really bad spot and she was really suffering and she posted a video of herself crying, 
how would I feel about it? And I thought, I would be so grateful. I would be so grateful to see somebody else feel like I do. And so I posted it. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that that is the inherently the the part of social media that we've lost. But it, I mean, it is essentially for connecting. And so whether, you know, it's gotten out of hand in so many different ways, but, um, you know, seeing people also in the same place as you, even if they are not physically with you, or if, even if they don't know you makes you feel less alone. So that's it 100% valid. And for me, Instagram is a place of connection. I have made friends from Instagram, just like literally true life people that I yeah. am now friends with that I see um, and I talk to um, and we hang out because we met on Instagram. Um, and I do all my own posts. There's nobody else involved. I do all my own stupid videos, which you can tell because they look really homemade and I can never figure <laughs> out the closed captioning. I have no idea what I'm doing. It's like, you know, this is a 57 year old woman trying to figure out how to do Instagram all by herself. But, you know, it's, that's it. it. You're getting just me. You're not getting anybody in the middle. You're not getting a team of professionals that are assembling it for me. You're just getting me at home in the morning trying to figure out what I want to say, what I want to talk about, what I want to hear comments on. And my audience, the people who follow me, um, you know, they listen and they, I mean, they're mostly they're really, really supportive and just amazing, which really kind of kept me afloat when I was drowning. Um, but like I keep saying, the trolls sometimes provide food for thought. So I read mm -hmm. all the comments too. Yeah. You know, and when I get to the, oh, you know, you're a performative narcissist and piss off and, you know, you're an ugly old hag and you need Botox. And, well, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm no longer that offended by them. And sometimes mm -hmm. they even provide, a, you know, space for some jokes. Although I also don't block them and I don't let them go unanswered because I think you should be responsible for what the crap you say yeah, in the world. I agree with that. You're nice. I block people all the time. <laughs> um, what, what do you want people to really be, though, the takeaway from reading No Filter? What do you feel like is, is the biggest lesson or something that you want them to feel in reading it? I think that would be unfair of me to say because what's been happening is that people, women that have read it and come up to me, it's the most rewarding moment in my life. I have to tell you, Lindsay, it's just so beautiful. They come and they have their copies of the book and they you know, they have all the pages turned that, that yeah. they feel like they relate to or underlined or little post-it notes stuck in it. And it looks like, you know, sometimes their books look like a salad bowl. To me, it's just absolutely fantastic. It makes me so happy. And they point out what they relate to. And everybody seems to be relating to different things. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the joy. It's like, you know, somebody will, somebody will say, oh, thank you for, you know, writing about anxiety and courage and Thank you for writing about antidepressants. Thank you for writing about height, about tall women. You know, mm -hmm. it's like so diverse. So I don't want to put out just like this one thing, like I hope that you can take this away from my book. I, I hope that 
that it can be some sort of a, 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 maybe kind of a companion for you in in recognizing aspects of yourself. Yeah. It always feels so good when you know you're not the only person out there feeling like this. But beyond that, I'm just so excited for women to get whatever they get out of it. I love that. I love that. As long um, as it's not like firewood. <laughs> no, it's an incredible book. Um, and you are so brave to to be so honest and vulnerable. I feel like we we read so many memoirs and, and novels now, um, and rarely do they actually get to the to the heart of it. So um I'm Well we super all grateful. filter, don't we? We all yeah. filter. I think vulnerability is uh is a really scary thing because when you leave yourself open, you leave yourself open to hurt. Yeah. Mm. And then you kind of have to be, I guess, strong enough to accept that, you know, if you open your rib cage and somebody just, you know, stabs your heart unprotected, that that's a risk you take um, in order to feel the joy of being open. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's an incredible book, and I hope Aww. everyone reads it. Um, so thank you so much Lindsay, for doing you. this. In Her Shoes is hosted by me, Lindsay Peoples. Our producer and editor for this episode is Taka Zen. Our engineer is Brandon McFarlane, and our executive producer is Hannah Rosen. The Cut is made possible by the excellent team at New York Magazine. Subscribe today at thecut.com slash subscribe. I'm Lindsay Peoples, and thank you so much for listening.